Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we've got a lot to cover this weekend, and on the news, we're watching what's taking place in Israel. You and I have been in Israel when over 400 rocket attacks took place. They've had over 800. To me, the situation certainly is tense in Israel right now. Like you said, we've been there when this is taking place, and to be honest with you, Jimmy, it's hard to even realize that it's going on when you're there, especially if you're in Jerusalem or if you're up north. We're going to cover this situation with Dave Dolan and with Winky Madad. We're going to look at it from a couple different angles. Rick, we also have Dr. Jimmy DeYoung doing the Legacy Series, and today he will be covering the Islamic world, the start of the Islamic people. And it's interesting. We're going back to Genesis chapter 25. God's plan for Isaac and his wife Rebecca was for them to have a son that God would use to carry the Abrahamic covenant along to the Jewish people. However, there was a problem. Rebekah was barren. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife and she conceived. Interesting how the Lord works. Instead of a son, God gives them two boys, Esau and Jacob. The Lord told Rebekah before their birth that there were two nations in her womb. That's verse 23 of chapter 25. Jacob would become the Jewish nation of Israel and Esau, the Palestinian people of today. We see in this prophetic passage, the major players in the last days, the Islamic world, the Palestinian people, and the Jewish people. There is much we could develop among these lines, but for now, let's realize that almost 3,500 years ago, the Lord was using Moses, the writer of Genesis, to lay out the prophetic scenario for the end times. We'll cover that later on in the program. Let's get started with our first broadcast partner, as always, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He joins us just about every week to talk about what's going on around the world. You can find out more about Ken by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we've got a lot of stories to get to from different countries around the world, but this week we have one common theme, and that is Russia. Let's start with Russia and China right now. China is sending a special envoy to Ukraine to try to put an end to this Ukrainian crisis. Uh, they are, and it's not entirely sure that this will be something in Moscow's favor. Uh, we've talked about this over the past couple of weeks. China has been emboldened by the U.S. stepping back from its role in the Middle East and from its one-sided uh, involvement in the Ukraine war. And the Chinese believe that they can play a mediating role, something that would certainly enhance their reputation for diplomacy around the world. And that's what's behind this. They have been making a lot of offers to Ukraine of helping them to reconstruct the country once the war is over. And they've been telling Putin that they're not really 150 percent behind this war. They'd like to see it over because, remember, China's interests are not necessarily Russia's interests. They don't want to see an imperial Russia. What China wants to see are guaranteed oil and gas supplies to communist China and its commercial trade routes. So it's belt and road initiative into Europe and also into Africa and into South America. So China's interest uh, can coincide with Russia's uh, at times, but they don't always. And here they're trying to play a mediating role, uh, which is good for China, not so good for the U.S., well, Ken, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more, but we've talked about this quite a bit over the last few months. This is also an example of China's growing influence in the world and the United States uh, waning influence in the world, isn't it? 
Well, that's right. And, and that's what it's really all about. The Chinese see a power vacuum here. And uh, President Xi is pretty smart. Uh, and he is going to leap into that power vacuum and do whatever he can. He sees that the United States is trying to pivot militarily to the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, as I mentioned last week, when we talked about uh, Iran's attack on shipping in the Persian Gulf, I said we don't have an aircraft carrier any longer to sail through the Strait of Hormuz. That's because our two active aircraft carriers are where? They're in the Pacific region to counter China. The Chinese see that. So they're trying to uh, take advantage of those vacuums elsewhere around the world to enhance their status, their stature. Well, we'll continue our conversation here and we'll talk about Russia now holding high level talks themselves with a couple of other Middle Eastern nations, namely Syria, Turkey and Iran. The Russians would like to see an end to the civil war in Syria, especially that they are now tied up so heavily militarily in Ukraine. Remember that the Russians since 2015 have been deeply involved in supporting the Assad regime. They kept them from collapse in 2015. They and the Iranians together have been supporting Assad. Assad has had difficult relations with Turkey. In, in recent years, the Turks have troops in northern Syria. This is a bone of contention. So when you see that the Russians are hosting these meetings between the foreign ministers of Syria, Turkey, and Iran in Moscow, it's a pretty significant thing. Uh, they would like to see Turkey and Syria become friends again, or at least not adversaries. That helps uh, the Russians. It helps them to probably reduce their military footprint in Syria while maintaining those bases. They got an air base and they got a naval base, very important for them to maintain, but they don't want to be uh, engaged in fighting on the ground. So this is, this is an important move for them. And I think it's in tandem of other things going on with Syria, notably bringing them back into the Arab League after a 10-year suspension. And of course, Turkey has quite a bit going on as well. President Erdogan in the fight for his political life. He is. That election is this Sunday, Rick. And as of now, the polls are still showing his opponent, Kemal Kilic Daraglu, is ahead by 10 points. And he's ahead by 10 points primarily from the votes he's been gaining from the Kurdish opposition parties. He's managed to forge a right-left alliance against Erdogan. Erdogan has got the Islamist groups behind him. He's got Turkish Hezbollah behind him. Uh, this is basically ISIS <laughs> under another name. It's pretty extraordinary to see that Erdogan is actually campaigning with one of their leaders in Turkey, an ISIS leader in Turkey. It, it's pretty appalling when you think about it, but no one is saying a word about this. Erdogan is still behind. I have been warning, and our listeners have been hearing this for the past many weeks, Rick, that Erdogan has many tricks up his sleeve. He could do something militarily in the next couple of days. He could cheat massively in the elections. His opponent, uh, again, Kilic Darulu, has accused him of using the Russians to interfere. Uh, so this election is not over. But here's the thing. If Erdogan wins, we're going to have perhaps another decade of an Islamist regime, an increasingly radical and powerful Islamist regime. If he loses, Turkey could change fundamentally and return back to its pro-Western stance, its ability to live with its Kurds and not to fight its, Kurdish, its own Kurdish population to end the war in Syria, to end the war against the Kurds in Syria. 
to rejoin NATO in an effective way, this is a big deal geopolitically, Rick. We talk about uh, divine intervention. Everybody says that the events that we're seeing between Saudi Arabia and Syria, them coming closer together, and Turkey getting closer together with Syria, uh, is have all been spurred by this enormous earthquake along the Turkish-Syrian border on February 6th. Now, if an earthquake is not an act of God, I don't know what is. It seems to me what you're saying is that President Erdogan is moving even closer to the Islamic, uh, the hardcore extremist Islamic party in order to win this election. Is that what I'm hearing? That's absolutely correct. He's allied with this group called Huda Par, which is Hezbollah, Turkish Hezbollah. Don't mix it up with the Iranian flavor Hezbollah. This is ISIS. This is ISIS in other clothing. Everybody in Turkey understands this, and Erdogan is openly allied with them. Look, we've heard, we've heard so many stories over the years, Rick, of Erdogan, his daughter, his son-in-law, helping to actually create ISIS in 2012, 2013, 2014. And they've been involved with them deeply, both financially with hospitals, uh, helping you know ISIS fighters who are wounded on the battlefield and funneling aid to them. So this is just another example of that alliance. It really shows Erdogan's true stripes. He is a radical Islamic fundamentalist. He wants to establish the Islamic State in Turkey. Well, we just have a brief second here, so I'd like to go to our final story, and that also involves Russia. There are many that are blaming Vladimir Putin for stoking the violence that we talked about last week in Sudan, and that continues on into this week. Uh, this is a story we need to look at in more detail in the weeks to come. There's information fragmentary at this point of involvement by the Wagner group, the Wagner group, meaning that remember that paramilitary group run by Yevgeny Prigozhin, a Putin ally who is deeply, deeply involved in Ukraine. It's a story about their involvement in uh, Sudan backing the former head of the Janjaweed Islamist militias. This is the general who, uh, with uh, intervention forces, has launched the civil war on the 16th of April. Uh, so if they are engaged, this could be a much more international conflict than we had previously thought. I had been warning uh, right here with you uh, last week that uh, what we're seeing is a fight between Islamists who are anti-Israel, anti-American, and a pro-Israel government, a pro-Israel general there, remember, who welcomed the Israeli foreign minister in Sudan in February to sign a peace agreement. So you have him against this Islamist general. And now we learn that the Islamist general is backed by the Wagner group, Putin's allies. So the plot thickens, Rick. Certainly does. And it seems like all of these incidents are interrelated. They all have political and, as we talk about on this program, prophetic implications as well. Well, again, if you'd like to find out more about Ken Timmerman's work, you can go to KenTimmerman.com and you can sign up for his mailing list. It's a great mailing list. Keeps you informed. Ken, thanks for all you do to keep our listeners informed. And we'll talk to you again soon. Rick, thanks so much. It's always a blessing to be with you. God bless. Great job as always, Ken. Remember, when we look at these, I believe that this war, these nations that are lining up, Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, Psalm 83, this is the second seal that will be unleashed, the man on a red horse, after the tribulation begins. If we're so close to this war and these alignment of nations now, how much closer are we to the rapture of the church? We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll focus on Israel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Turkish citizens go to the polls on Sunday, May 14, to elect a new president. Current President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is seeking re-election and promotes Islamic values. His main challenger, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, is calling for more freedom and Western ties. It's a stark contrast, and Joe Willie with Sat7 says this election will have significant ripple effects. Pray for Turks to embrace gospel hope no matter who's president. And the big headline today in Pakistan is Imran Khan's release after days of his supporters clashing with the military. That's why other stories like this one about a missionary get buried. But it's important. A Mission Cry partner was attacked after sharing the gospel with his motorcycle cab driver. Mission Cry's Jason Wolford says the driver broke their partner's arms and told him he'd never distribute Bibles again. The missionary is getting medical care and praise God, he's determined to keep distributing Bibles. Pray for spiritual encouragement. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of biblical prophecy. Well, this is the part of the program where we look at our Middle East news update. We look at the Middle East in general and Israel in particular, and to do that, we have with us journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. Happy to be with you once again, Ray. Well, Dave, unfortunately, we are looking at another conflict between Israel and Gaza. It is escalated. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it seems to have gotten worse. Can you let us know where we stand right now? Well, Rick, we have to look back to May 2nd when this Palestinian Islamic Jihad prisoner in an Israeli jail uh, died after a three-month hunger strike. Now, Israel obviously didn't want him on a hunger strike. Israeli authorities tried to get nutrition into him. Uh, a drip in the end and different things, but he passed away and Islamic Jihad leaders made the stupid mistake of firing over a hundred rockets into Israel a little over a week ago. And of course, the Israelis said at the time and Netanyahu, the prime minister and the uh, Gallant, the defense minister, that there would be an Israeli response to that, that it was unprovoked, that, you know, Israel didn't kill this man. He took his own life, as it were. And Operation Shield and Arrow was launched on Tuesday, and it's been going on ever since. We've had nearly a thousand rockets by Friday evening fired into Israel from the Gaza Strip. I should say a thousand rockets fired, but uh, about uh, 200 of them actually landed inside of the Gaza Strip. They usually do uh, have some failures like that. Uh, Over 300 were intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome, thank God. But, of course, a number of rockets did get through. We had a death in the Tel Aviv area on Thursday when a rocket hit an apartment building. An elderly man was killed, Israeli man. 
We had others wounded there. We had rocket fire on Ashkelon. We had rocket fire on Beersheba. And then on Friday, yesterday at noontime, for the first time, Islamic Jihad fired rockets at Jerusalem, aimed in the direction of Jerusalem. Some uh, were intercepted over Beit Shemesh near the city, and a couple were fired down towards Hebron in uh, Judea. That was the first time in the conflict. So Israel is saying as long as these firings continue, they will continue their operations in Gaza. And as of uh, Friday evening, they had killed six Rick, uh, senior Islamic Jihad leaders, including the new commander who just took over on Tuesday from the assassination of the previous commander. These are top Islamic Jihad officials. Yet the group says it will continue with its uh, rocket campaign against Israel, and it's uh, also threatening more trouble next week when Israel uh, commemorates the liberation of Jerusalem, the capture of Jerusalem in 1967 by the IDF. That's according to the Hebrew calendar. And of course, the Palestinians are marking Nakba Day, the uh, anniversary of Israel's creation. Uh, According to the Western calendar, that's on Monday. So we have probably more trouble ahead. The big question is, Will uh, the firing uh, escalate to include Lebanon? Will Hamas get involved? So far, they've been staying out of it. And uh, will there actually be Iranian, direct Iranian uh, action? And there's some speculating that all that could be coming. Certainly a concerning situation and not something we haven't seen before, but you never know how it is going to play out as it continues to go. Well, if we look at this situation, you've talked about this war is essentially between the IDF or Israel's defense force and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Hamas staying, at least so far, staying on the sidelines for this one. Could you explain to our listeners the difference between Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad? And do they work together? Do they not? Are they rival factions? How does that work? All of the above, Rick. They're rival factions, but they often do work together. The one thing they have in common is that Iran militarily backs both of them and financially as well. But Islamic Jihad is their full puppet force, if I could put it that way. They are totally under Iranian control. They are more radical, if you can be more radical, than Hamas officials are. Uh, They definitely want Israel's total destruction, as Hamas says it does as well. But Hamas is actually the ruling government, in effect, in the Gaza Strip, not Islamic Jihad. So Hamas wants to keep that role, and they really don't want another full war with Israel at this time. Uh, Apparently, they've been staying out of the conflict, although reports have said they've been uh, funneling some ammunition and some rockets to Islamic Jihad. But uh, they have often clashed in the past, Rick, and uh, really Hamas doesn't want to see Islamic Jihad strengthened in any way. But the opinion surveys are already showing that on the Palestinian street, their popularity is soaring because they're seen as being brave enough to take on the Israelis all by themselves. And even if the start of it was not Israel's fault, really, but they still, of course, want to see Israel destroyed. And they have a lot of support in uh, growing support in northern Samaria, as we've talked about uh, several times this year. Well, David, the dynamics of this situation are very interesting. And if you look at it, we talked about the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They have been sending rockets kind of 
just pointing them in a general direction and sending them to basically civilian targets. Uh, Israel's response has been very targeted assassinations of high-level Palestinian Islamic Jihad officials. So there are real-life consequences for what this faction is doing. And Hamas, I would venture to say that if they join this conflict, there's going to be similar consequences for them, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. It would uh, increase the scope of the conflict considerably because they, of course, are a much larger force. And they have, as Islamic Jihad does as well, they have cells in South Lebanon as well. We had some rocket fire from there earlier uh, this year, and the concern is that they may start firing from that direction. Already life has been totally disrupted, Rick, this week in central and southern Israel. The Home Front Command announced that the Backstreet Boys performance scheduled for last night in the Tel Aviv area had been canceled. They didn't want people out. They want people staying near their shelters and their homes. So life has been very disrupted. Schools have been closed, transportation closed. But if Hamas gets involved, they have rockets of a much greater range than Islamic Jihad has. They could hit up into Tel Aviv easily and even up into Haifa. And again, they have more forces in Lebanon also that could join in. And the ultimate question, as we've talked about many times, is will Iran order an all-out offensive, meaning that Hezbollah would join in from the north Hamas join in from the north and south, Islamic Jihad, and internal attacks as well, and maybe Iran itself, uh, with its forces based in Syria in particular, would join in. That's the great concern, and the former general that headed the territories that went on radio this week in Israel said he thinks this is a real possibility, a 50-50 chance that this will escalate into a much broader war. Of course, Israelis are hoping it doesn't. But uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, whose popularity, by the way, Rick, is soaring as a result of this uh, uh, mini-conflict, uh, the polls showing him regaining strength and Benny Gantz, his main opponent, losing some support. So that's interesting. But uh, Netanyahu's not doing this for that reason. But it does ease his internal governmental problems. And, of course, it stopped all the street protests against the judicial reform movement uh, proposals that we've been seeing, at least for the time being it has. Well, David, we've only got about a minute or so left, but uh, there's two events that are going to take place this week. The official day for what the Palestinians term the Nakba or the catastrophe, their commentary on the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. They mourn that, not celebrate is not the right word, but they mourn that every year. And that's coming up this week, as well as the Jerusalem Day, or some call it the Flag Day, the patriotic march in Jerusalem that goes by the Damascus Gate. We always have to be very careful because that could be a parade filled with tension. So those two events taking place this week could be real flashpoints, couldn't they? Well, definitely. And this year, Jerusalem Day occurs on a Friday. It moves around. And of course, Friday is the Muslim Day of Prayer, and that's often when we have trouble in Jerusalem. So there's every prospect that that will be an explosive day, and of course, the Nakba Day as well. But you know, Israel's here, and the Palestinians don't like it. Reportedly, Islamic Jihad wanted the, the flag parade canceled as part of ceasefire talks going on in Cairo. Those have been going on, by the way, since Tuesday. Several times we thought we had a ceasefire, and then more rockets came, and Israel has said, we'll continue this operation as long as we need to shield and arrow. So it's meant to shield Israel from further rocket attacks. 
The arrow, of course, being another name for the anti-missile force that Israel's firing and thankfully successfully taking out most of these rockets. Again, if they didn't have that system and dozens of Israelis were being killed, we would have been in a full war long before now, long before this year even. Well, David, we know that the Bible says that Jerusalem will be the center of controversy in the last days. It certainly is now. And we look at these Iranian-backed proxies, which is, as you mentioned earlier, that's what the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas are. The Bible talks about Iran coming against Israel in the last days. So we know this is going to take place. But for right now, as we look ahead towards the end days, we do want to keep Israel in our prayers, don't we? We absolutely do. Critical times and Bible prophecy unfolding. So there's a silver lining behind the news, but definitely a lot of pressure on people in Israel. I've been in touch with some of my friends and everybody would love some prayer from all of us. David, as always, thank you for keeping our listeners informed. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Rick. God bless. Much more to come on Israel. We'll be right back right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. The next half hour, two of our favorites, Israel Madad from Israel. You know, after living there for so many years, being in the land, uh, both Rick and I have been there doing tours, living there, doing television work all these years. I want you to hear firsthand what's happening in the land, what's happening there in the area of the what we call Judea and Samaria, what the world calls the West Bank, and the influence of Islam on the Palestinian people in the nation of Israel today. Just a moment, Israel will be here with us, and then uh, Dr. Rob Cognon will be with us today, speaking about a thread of anti-Semitism running through Christianity. So stay tuned for that, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, in the Legacy Series, speaking on Islam. Uh, where it began, what it's all about, and we have that in our third half hour of the program. Well, let's, uh, Rick, let's get Israel Madad in here. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We've got Winky Madad with us. He's a good friend, former mayor of Shiloh. He comes on the program often to talk about history and politics there in Israel. Winky, thank you for joining us. Thank you again, once again, for having me on. Well, Winky, first thing I want to know, we spoke about it in the previous half hour with David Dolan, and now we're talking with you. There's quite a bit, at least in the news, coming across about what's taking place there on the Gaza border. You're not necessarily near there, but can you tell me how it's affecting your everyday life and maybe the everyday life of the average Israeli citizen? Well, look, of course, everybody is very concerned. At the present moment, we have a duel, if I can call it that, 
with an organization called the Islamic Jihad or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, which developed over the past two or three months, actually because of their involvement, their heavy involvement in the Janine area, which was giving Israel a bit of problems. I won't get into all the details, but we, Israel, saw the necessity of taking out some of their top leadership, and this set off the latest round. Most of their weaponry is is limited in, in, in scope, is limited in its uh, geographical reach. And so we're talking about an area just north of the Gaza Strip. Far north, say, is about Rishon Lezion or Rehovot. And then in the south, towards uh, Be'er Sheva, and of course, most of the small agricultural communities surrounding the Gaza Strip. So in that sense, most of the major population centers of Israel are not uh, in direct line of fire or have suffered uh, any sort of damage or injury, uh, luckily. One more point, of course, is we're seeing an amazing ability of Israel's technology in terms of the Iron Dome uh, to take out over 90% of all the rocketry that's coming over the border. Winky, I've been there during these types of instances, these flare-ups, and if you're not in that specific area, you really don't notice it. In fact, for much of the Israeli body politic, like you said, everybody that's not near that place, life is just going on as normal, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I was I was uh, at the uh, Machane Yehuda marketplace today. The Knesset has been in session late until Wednesday evening. What else can I say? In fact, there's a huge rock festival going on on Tel Aviv Beach with about 40,000 people. So in that sense, uh, life goes on, and I hope it stays within that limited cross-border exchange. doesn't help the people in the South, but at this moment, it's not a direct threat to more than that geographical area. Winky, there's been several flare-ups like this over, let's say, the last 15 years. Can you put this one in context? Is this is there any reason to believe this is going to be more serious or last longer than any of those other situations? Well, I'm not privy to the conversations between the Israeli government and Egypt, for example. Uh, but from what I can pick up, of course, it's been very made, it's been made very clear to Hamas uh, to stay out of the conflict and have it limited to the Islamic Jihad and see what they can do up against Israel. They're not doing well, I can tell you right now. They've lost almost a dozen of their senior commanders uh, with field-level authority in terms of uh, head of uh, rocketry and and this and that, whatever they call themselves. And Israel has taken out dozens of munition stores and warehouses and rocketry, making uh, uh, factories, all this type of stuff like that. Uh, Unfortunately, most of the Western world does not realize that we cannot judge the psychological or even political ability of the terrorist groups in Gaza to act rationally, unfortunately. You would think that after getting hit very hard, you might crawl away for a while and, you know, for a year or so and, and lick your wounds, but they don't do that. In fact, I saw a clip earlier before in which about a dozen to two dozen little kids, you know, six to 12-year-olds, 
are dancing in the streets as Gaza rockets go off. Do you not realize that Israeli, whether it's drone strikes, whether it's helicopters, or whether it's actually airplanes, are going to hit back? And it's not going to make life easy for them. So it's very difficult in a situation like this because you don't want to be seen as being a warlord or, or some sort of aggressor. All you're trying to do is protect your civilian population, which I remind you and the listeners, is the target of 99.9% of what is coming out of Gaza. They're not shooting at military camps. They're not shooting at tanks or or even at airplanes. They're shooting at buildings, at, at schools, uh, at, at roads and highways. And uh, that what makes things so frustrating, at least for me as, as, as commenting on the issue. Certainly does. Well, I talked a little bit about the politics of this with Dave Dolan, but I'd like to get your perspective as well. How does this change the political calculation for what's going on in Israel? Security has always been a point that Israelis can rally around. This government that we've chronicled it quite a bit, they've been going through their struggles with the judicial overhaul. How does this conflict change the political scenario here? Well, of course, first of all, the opposition has uh, stood up and said we're supporting the government. They don't want to lose any more votes as it is but by being too weak on security issues. As we've seen almost in all the uh, elections, when it comes down to the wire, people vote, A, security, and then everything else, whether it's uh, economics or culture or whatever. The second thing, of course, is that we have to keep in mind that the Islamic Jihad itself is a proxy of Iran. So this, while it might look like a small skirmish on the face of 75 years of, of Israel-Arab conflict, we also have to keep in mind that it's part of Iran's planning, I wouldn't even say strategic planning, to keep Israel off balance or to keep on wounding Israel and proving to the rest of the Arab world that their position is correct. Uh, at the present moment, Egypt is not in with that, and a few other Arab countries are not very happy with that position, and Israel has to take that into consideration as well. Well, we'll move on from that situation, as we've covered that with both you and Dave, but I had just a couple more questions I want to ask you, Winky, and we'll start with uh, this past week. There have been many people, the UN, even U.S. lawmakers, have commemorated what they call the Nakba Day. Nakba, that means catastrophe in Arabic, and basically that catastrophe is the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. And so this event that takes place that people commemorate, just the thought of a catastrophe of the creation of a Jewish state seems anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic. If I could, can I get your thoughts on this day? Well, of course, uh, my position would be and I would challenge you or all of our listeners to try to prove me wrong, is, is another, uh, not only another, it's, it's the major uh, step in reversing the chronicles of what happened in 1948. It just twists everything around. It's, it's your 1984 falsehood is truth uh, situation. The United Nations declared 
in late 47 that two states would arise, an Arab state and a Jewish state in the former Palestine mandate territory. The Arabs refused. They went to war, not Israel. They launched the war of aggression. And they lost. They took a gamble, and they lost. And in fact, the original use of the word Nakba was by a Christian Syrian who tried to describe the breakup and the weakness of Arab society that allowed, in his terms, the Zionists to beat an overwhelming numerically strong foe of, of the Jews in Palestine at the time. In other words, the Nakba wasn't what we did to them, but what they did to themselves. And ever since, they've been victimizing themselves as poor refugees and all sorts of the rest of the stories until, as you indicated, you have in Congress a few Congress women and men holding a some sort of, I don't know, a discussion or a rally. I saw a picture of it, about maybe 40 to 50 people in the room about how Israel is an apartheid state, uh, all the lies that come out, and now it's inside Congress. I mean, it used to be in the streets, then they got it into the universities, and then they pushed it into the media, and now they're bringing it into Congress. And I, I think that's very unfortunate for the American public when their politicians are being taken over by uh, such falsehoods. I certainly agree with that. Well, along these same lines, uh, and I was following your Twitter feed, and if for those that would like to do that, you can go to Y-M-E-D-A-D, Y-M-E-D-A-D. That, that's your handle, at Y-M-E-D-A-D. And uh, you had tweeted something this last week, or retweeted, talking about the real meaning of from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Now, that's something that's often chanted at these type of Nakba events or, or Palestinian rallies around the world. But if we look at that, that means the destruction of the state of Israel, doesn't it? Well, yes, because the sea is the Mediterranean Sea, and the river is the Jordan River. And I appeal to all our listeners to do a simple Google search or even open up uh, an atlas that maybe you have at home. And if you look at that, if Palestine is from the river to the sea, where is Israel going to be? Mm -hmm. right? I'm, that might be a counter chant, even, in fact, if you wanted to go out in the street, you know. But it leaves Israel nowhere. So basically, it's calling for the extinction of a state, what they call politicide, Right. And where are nine million people, about seven million of them Jews, going to go? Right. We were thrown out of every other country over the past few centuries. And in the 20th century, we suffered the horrific loss during the Holocaust. Seven hundred thousand Jews got kicked out of Arab lands after Israel was created as a reaction. So it might rhyme. Right. For B.C. And, and free. But it, it, it doesn't make any sense rhyme or reason other than the means goodbye Jews. And I think that's that's the message that, that people should tell anybody if they hear someone chanting that. So where do you think the Jews are going to go? And that's the inimical damage that could be done by a off-the-top-of-your-head slogan like that. My father always used to say words have meaning, and they certainly do. And these words, the Nakba, the catastrophe 
from the river to the sea, these words have meaning and we want to highlight that and look at them. Well, my final question, and this is on a little bit of a lighter note, but uh, you are also a journalist. We've seen your opinion pieces in the Jerusalem Post, in the Times of Israel. This week, I saw a blog post from you in the Times of Israel talking about the the oil that was used for the coronation of King Charles. You, you had some interesting thoughts on it. Could you talk about that? Well, you wouldn't think me to be an expert on a coronation, but since the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Mr. Justin Welby, I think his name is, he was the one who stressed the biblical tradition of the coronation by using a recipe that very much paralleled that which could be found in the Bible. And I thought as a bit of a uh, twist, I I don't want to say the twist of the knife, that doesn't sound right, (laughs) but a little bit of twist on his words, he's one of the most anti-Israel bishops we have around, especially in the Church of England. I pointed that out, yet he talked about the biblical connection of the coronation oil, and I pointed out that that oil was used for the high priests, for the anointing of David and Solomon, which is written in the good book, as we say. So where did he think these people lived, if not in something called Judea or Samaria or the land of Israel, and they were Jewish, and then I said... Were there any Palestinian kings that perhaps he could have learned that lesson from? And I I left it up to the reader, and I leave it up to the uh, audience that's listening to us now. There is no such thing as Palestine. Everything is the kingdom of Judea and the kings of Israel, and that's the real history of this land. And, uh, you know, a little oil can go a long way if you really think about it with an open mind. Well, his statements do seem a bit paradoxical, and if you would like to read that article, we'll put it up on our website, but if you go to the Times of Israel and look for Yisrael Madad, you will see that story there. Well, Winky, as always, you bring a unique perspective, both historically, biblically, and politically, as to what's taking place in Israel, both now and in the past. Thank you so much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for the opportunity, and goodbye to you and our listeners. It's always good to get Israel Madad's perspective on what's taking place in the land of Israel. Thanks, Rick. Well, I mentioned at the beginning of this half hour that there's a thread of anti-Semitism running through a portion of Christianity. I've decided to bring back a good friend of ours, Dr. Rob Congdon. Welcome to the program again. Well, it's so good to be with you again. I know we all get very busy, but it is good to talk to you and to your listeners. First of all, give us your website and what, what would you want you're a new listener or a long-time listener, to focus on going to your website. What can we see? Okay, our website is congdenministries.org. Just do a search in Google for Robert Congdon and you'll find it. Uh, it's a video teaching ministry, and we really emphasize two prime areas. First of all and foremost, it really is an in-depth teaching, looking at not only current affairs, but prophecy from a more in-depth level than much teaching that is out there. That's not to criticize the other teaching, but we feel it's time to to really dig deep. And I have that privilege. The Lord's allowed me to sit and research heavily before I produce the videos. Mm. We're doing a series on Armageddon right now. 
and the eight stages of Armageddon. Most people don't even realize there's anything more than just a battle there. Wow. Ironically, there isn't. So our videos are teaching that, and, of course, current affairs, and specifically what we feel are some of the dangers to the churches today within the churches. And and we're going to touch on it, I suspect, in just a few minutes. But Calvinism is having a major impact on the churches in the United States, and we're dealing with that impact and why we be, believe that the scriptures need to be understood before you get taken into this kind of movement. Well, that's, let's talk about that, because I sent you an article uh, from the Jerusalem Post, and even today, Jewish media, newspapers, religious Jews, uh, and I'm not talking uh, Christian religious Jews, I'm talking about religious Jews in the land of Israel, uh, we focus on them because we understand God still has a plan for them. But they are talking about the the, Christ, the support of the Christian community and how it's not as strong as it once was and it's not supportive as it once was. And I sent you this article, the U.S. Presbyterian Church uh, unanimously voted to declare Israel an apartheid state. And uh, their International Engagement Committee voted overwhelmingly to recognize that Israel's laws, policies, and practices regarding the Palestinian people fulfill the international legal definition of apartheid. Now, we've covered this before, but let's, let's get into this a little bit. Why the Presbyterian Church, why are they coming out so strong in a BDS uh, campaign? Well, there's two motivations that I have seen and observed behind it. One is just plain political. Politics is trying to pressure, and part of their resolutions, they passed three resolutions unanimously. One is to get our government to quit supporting Israel with arms sales and security arrangements. And, of course, that totally ignores the fact that we gain much from Israel also. They mm. test our weapons for us, and they also provide great security information to the U.S. So that's the political. They're, they're just against that movement. And that's starting to reflect a general culture movement. But secondly, there is the spiritual motivation behind this. And it comes right back as far as I'm concerned, because I've seen this historically over several hundred years, as Calvinism really controls. And let's face it, the U.S. Uh, Presbyterian Assembly is Calvinistic, strong Calvinism. And Calvinism has had a resurgence. Instead of it being just a theory about salvation or security, eternal security, it's become an everyday event in these churches promoting certain movements. Inevitably, anti-Semitism, anti-Israel grows within a Calvinistic church. And that driving is because of their view of prophecy. If if you don't believe there's a millennium, you don't believe there's a tribulation where God's calling back Israel to awaken them and turn them to him, if you don't believe that, you believe that God will just at any moment sort of flip a switch and that'll end this age and we'll go into the new heavens and new earth, if you don't believe in Israel's future, it's easy to become anti-Semitism. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 talks about a natural enmity between the non-Christian and the Jewish people. And that God breaks that down when you receive Christ. But Calvinism seeks to reestablish that. And that's what this was. This is this apartheid accusation uh, against Israel is to turn 
the world against Israel. And uh, they're leading the way. The Presbyterians are, as I've said, are strong Calvinists. So that force is very strong in their churches and in the United States today. Well, where would you say uh, the Presbyterian Church started to go wrong? I mean, as far as uh, I mean, we clearly see, we teach that God is not finished with the Jewish people. That's why we focus on them. But where where did it go wrong as to uh, you know Calvinism, uh, the Presbyterian Church? Where where at what point in history did they start to veer off of this? Uh, really uh, 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 their eschatology going astray. Well, it's interesting. I grew up in a Presbyterian church as a young lad, and it wasn't there at all. And uh, it wasn't until later. And what we've really seen is a resurgence in around 1990 on of Calvinism throughout the country. Mm. And that has largely come through the growth of Internet teaching on Calvinism and the promotion of it largely started by Piper in Minnesota. And that movement has spread rapidly to stir up what I would call the theological basis that the Presbyterians originally held, but have never made preeminent. The church I was in, you wouldn't even know it was Calvinistic unless you pressed for a specific answer to a question about Calvinism. But now that's totally changed. It's it's almost like it's a an aggressive movement and very aggressive movement in churches, in Baptist churches, Bible churches, Presbyterian churches, to bring in Calvinism and push out what I call Biblicism, which is the true biblical faith. Well, it's interesting, Dr. Congdon, you brought that up because I had a conversation with a young lady that was going to a Christian university trying to find a church. And just about every church now, she grew up as a Baptist. That was her denomination. Her father's a pastor. She wanted to find a good church in the city of where she was going to college. Visiting seven or eight churches, she was able to detect that every church that she walked into, there were situations where it seemed Calvinistic. And she asked her dad, so why do we see this really bringing back up into even our Baptist churches that say they're Baptist, but there's Calvinism is growing stronger in the Baptist churches? Well, I believe, and here we go to prophecy again, I believe, and I wrote about it in a small booklet about the future of Calvinism, I believe it's actually Satan is using it to establish a, a foothold to prepare for during the tribulation. Mm. Now think about this. If a person believes he's elect and doesn't have to make a decision to receive Christ, he's just, oh, I'm elect, I was confirmed when I was 12 years old, I'm elect, uh, that's a head knowledge at best. And when the rapture occurs, all true believers are removed from this earth, earth, taken to be with their Lord. That means at the start of the tribulation, there's no unsaved people. But there will be people who intellectually have believed in Jesus, if you will, and they're being geared up to look for a messianic Christ, if you will. And when the tribulation occurs, they start putting it together. They think the Antichrist will be it. So it, it's much of the prophetical teaching, if you will call it prophetical teaching, of the Calvinist Church is almost setting the groundwork for that time and for people who don't have a true heart, trust, and faith in Jesus Christ. Those people will face the tribulation, and they're, they're being set up because Calvinism also believes that the government, the state government, is to carry out the rules of the church. Mm. 
Mm. And that's that's what you've got in the tribulation. So it's I think it's Satan working overtime. He knows his time is short. Wow, wow. Well, uh, we have always said in this program, your eschatology determines your theology, and I think that's so true. Well, one of the <laughs> that was I mean we could spend uh, and we will in the future we could spend a lot more time, uh, but we do know that this is. Uh, one of the indications that we're living definitely in the end times or, or the last days. You know, and I always explain to people, Dr. Cognon, you know, what makes sense to us, uh, God is using world leaders to accomplish his will. He's using events in history, past and present and future, to set the stage for prophetic events that take place in his timeline. And it is He's sovereign, he's in control of all, and everything that happens every single day, that's why we focus on these events, so that we might understand where we are in this in, in these end times. Dr. Congdon, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, even though these are tumultuous times, it sounds when you talk, you're very comfortable in the fact that we are living in the last days, and there's nothing to be afraid of, Correct. Absolutely. I get more excited every day because not only do I see what the Bible is telling me where it's all going, but I'm getting excited personally because it could be quickly we could all be taken up at the rapture to see our Lord and be with him from that day on. Amen. Well, I look forward to being with you soon again, and uh, thank you so much. The blessings to your ministry, your wife, and all that you're doing. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Lord bless you all. Well, we need to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, the beginning of Islam, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr., and along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, on our website, we have so many opportunities for people to get resources that they can use in their study of God's prophetic word. That's right, Jimmy. And on the program today, we've talked about things that are taking place politically around the world as they're setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, if you go to our website and you look at our bookstore, you can see when we look at these stories, we're not just reading them as headlines or for the news sake, but we're comparing them to what the Bible says is going to happen in the end times. And as we look at the two, we compare the two together. We see things are quickly coming into place. And Jimmy, if you want to, I, I encourage all of our listeners to go to prophecytoday.com, go to our bookstore, and look at some of the teaching that we have on there. Yes, that's prophecytoday.com. Well, Rick, our legacy series today, we're going to continue our study on Islam. We will see how Abraham's first son, Ishmael, fathered a culture that would prepare the Middle East nation of Saudi Arabia to be the birthplace of the religion known as Islam. I must remind you that neither Abraham nor his son Ishmael fathered the Arab world. However, Ishmael and his 12 sons developed a culture that would lead to a man who would claim to be a direct descendant of Ishmael. That would be Muhammad, who would in fact establish the Islamic faith. We'll begin our study today by looking at the 25th chapter of Genesis, verse 18. Dr. Jimmy D. Young and the Legacy Series. Notice verse 18 and where they went to live. Now, you may not recognize this immediately, but go to your concordance. You'll find out what it's talking about. 
I'll tell you what it is. Verse 18, and they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, that is before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria, and he died in the presence of all of his brethren. It's talking about uh, Ishmael who dies. Where is this geographically? This is a country at that time in history called Arabia. Today, we know it as Saudi Arabia. The only nation that Ishmael was to father was Saudi Arabia of today or Arabia of his times. Let me tell you uh, how Islam came into existence. It was because of the culture, the pre-Islamic culture. And remember, I told you word does not mean peace. It means submission. Salam in uh, Arabic is peace. Islam means submission and bringing it under submission. These 12 sons of Ishmael were born. They became chiefs of tribes, uh, but they, just like their father, wanted to take over and control others and would even move out to take over their own brother's tribes. They would approach these tents in the desert. They were Bedouins. They were watching their sheep and their goats in the field. They were nomads. They were traveling through the desert, just making an existence out of a life in the desert. But they would try to take over and they would come in and they would capture and bring under submission. Hello? Bring under submission their brothers and his tribe. Thus they became known as Islamic warriors. This was before ever Islam came into existence. In the Arabic language, they were known as Islamic warriors because they would bring somebody else under submission to them. That was the culture that was in place in 570 when Muhammad was born in Arabia. At that point in time, he grew up to be 40 years of age. He became very interesting in the, interested in the religions of the world, in particular Judaism and Christianity. He decided that he was going to endeavor to try to coexist with these people, maybe becoming involved with one of them, but he saw that wasn't going to work. So he started to put all the elements together of both. He then went in, supposedly had a mystical meeting with the uh, archangel Gabriel and was dictated to him the Quran. And so he develops this holy book and he establishes what he calls Islam. Submission. And then he moved out to bring the world under submission. You may not know this. He started in Mecca. He was run out of Mecca by the city fathers. He went over to Medina. He surrendered. He wrote a a peace treaty with them, went to Medina. He recouped and got everything all together. And this is an Islamic principle as well. You take what you have to get and deal with politically. You recoup, rearm, and you go back and do what you need to do. And he came back into Mecca and killed every single person in Mecca. And establish that as the Islamic headquarters of the world, bringing them under submission. He was the leader of one of the tribes, one of those 12 tribes that came from Ishmael. In fact, Muhammad stood to say, I am a direct descendant of Ishmael. Muhammad did not establish and was not the father of the Arab world. He was the father of the Islamic world which is a satanic religion. Go to 1 John just a moment. 1 John chapter 4. Let me show you a very interesting two verses in 1 John 
chapter 4. Some get upset with me when I call Islam a satanic religion. They say that's not politically correct. Friends, I don't need to be politically correct. I need to be biblically correct. And let me prove my statement. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist. Allah never had a son. His name was not Jesus Christ. And John the Revelator, in another book, a book that uh, we can read and understand how we can know we can have eternal life in a part of that message says everybody who believes that Jesus Christ was the son of God in the living flesh is of God. Anybody who denies that Jesus Christ was the son of God in the living flesh is an antichrist. This is a satanic religion. But let me make this very important statement to you. Islam is not the false religion of the book of Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17, which would be the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Let me just illustrate this for you. Remember the rapture of the church, the next main event on God's calendar of activities in the future. And then there's a seven-year period of time, the return of Jesus Christ. And after a thousand-year millennial reign, Jesus Christ will sit at the great white throne judgment, sentencing those who rejected him in the lake of fire after that eternity future, new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. There is, according to Revelation chapter 17, to be in place for a three and a half year period of time, a false religion. Chapter 17 and verse 5 said it was established out of Babylon. Babylon, the mother of all harlots. It was a mother-son cult that was established 4,500 years ago by Nimrod, Semiramis, and their son Tammuz. Semiramis and Tammuz, both mentioned in the scripture. That mother-son cult is to be headquartered in the seven-hilled city. Chapter 17, verse 9, which would be, according to all scriptures and all commentators, the city of Rome, Italy. That false church will operate under the leadership of Antichrist. The word beast, Antichrist, one of his 27 names, is used eight times in chapter 17. That's the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. This is a false religion. But Islam is not that false religion. And the second thing I want to make a definite statement on is that the Antichrist is not of the Islamic faith. I'm going to show you in the scriptures why it's an impossibility. There's a lot of people teaching this today, and most of them teaching that come out of an Islamic background. And they are allowing their political views to dictate their interpretation of the scripture. It is not the uh, false religion. It is not going to be the religion of the Antichrist. Go with me to the book of Ezekiel, if you will. Ezekiel chapter 38. We looked yesterday at Daniel chapter 11 just briefly when I was giving you the first three nations that will make a move against the Jewish state of Israel. Those first three nations would be Syria, Egypt, and Libya. They're found there in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel, verses 40 to 44. Those will be the first three nations to make a move against Israel. 
Ezekiel chapter 38 is a parallel passage to Daniel 11. Also, you must include Psalm 83 as another parallel passage. In Ezekiel chapter 38, we see exactly what is going to happen, what is going to unfold at the time soon after the rapture of the church. And I'll give you the indication when it's supposed to be. Look here in verse 2. Son of man, Ezekiel 38, 2. Son of man, set thy face against the land of Magog and the the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him. Verse 5. Persia and Ethiopia and Libya and with them all of them with shield and helmet. Verse 6. Gomer and all the bands of the house of Tagarman of the north quarters. Now we've already heard some of those names when we were looking at the genealogy in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis. Again, I tell you Magog, that is the location north of the Caspian and Black Sea, where the son of Jepheth, the grandson of Noah, went to live in its modern-day Russia geographically. And then Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma, mentioned here in verses 2 and 6, would be south of the Caspian and Black Sea. That's modern-day Turkey. Let's look here at verse 5, Persia. Until 1936, There were three countries we know by different names today that were referred to as Persia. 1936, they became individual states, and they are Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Iran, in fact, still speaks the Persian language. And so those are the ones who would be Persia, Ethiopia, I told you, would be Kush, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Libya as modern-day Libya. These nations are going to form a coalition to attack and destroy the nation of Israel. They're going to come up and try to wipe them off the face of the earth. Keep your finger here. Go back to Psalm 83 just a moment. Let me show you a very interesting quote in Psalm 83 that deals with uh, exactly what their plan is. Psalm 83 is a psalmist prayer praying that the Lord would intercede in a time of great trouble for the Jewish people. Let me just read a little bit of Psalm 83 to you. Verse 1. Keep not thou silence, O God. Hold not thy peace. Be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make a tubal, and they that hate thee have lifted up my head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. In other words, here is this enemy of yours, God, who are coming up against us, the Jewish people, your chosen people. They've gone into meetings. They have crafty counsel coming together. They're going to come out of the meeting. Here's what they're going to say. Verse 4. And they have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Now, that's almost a direct quote from Hamadinejad on July the 9th, 2008. 2008, July the 9th, he stood in Tehran, Iran, among 4,000 Islamic radical leaders. He said, we must wipe Israel off the face of the earth and her name be forgotten forever. That was the 9th. On the 12th, Hezbollah attacked from southern Lebanon, attacking northern Israel. And there ensued a 60-day war. It did not break into a full Middle Eastern war. They were trying to move. Hezbollah are the surrogates put in southern Lebanon in 1982 by Ayatollah Khomeini. They're the ones that killed 252 Marines in the barracks there in Lebanon. They have a desire, one desire, to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Hezbollah, Iran's surrogate terrorist group, 
in southern Lebanon has stated publicly that they want to rid the Middle East of the Jewish state of Israel. The leaders of Iran have stated that Israel must be and will be wiped off the face of the earth in the future. God will not allow the total demise of the Jewish state to happen. The Lord will intercede to save the Jews from total destruction. God has a future plan for the Jewish people, and that plan will be carried out in what seems to be the very near future. What will happen to the Islamic world in the future is found written in the pages of Bible prophecy. That will be our study for next week. Please join us. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. If you're interested in getting this audio series, you can go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Remember, there are so many things that you can get there, books, DVDs, audio series, all of those at our website, prophecytoday.com. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. It's been two days since Pakistan's ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan was arrested on corruption charges and protests flooded the streets. Over a thousand people have been jailed in clashes with military and police. FMI's Nehemiah says with a long history of martial law, it's an unprecedented moment in Pakistan to see citizens clashing with the military. Pakistani Christians are heartbroken for their Muslim neighbors who feel let down by police and politics and have no hope. Pray for gospel opportunities in Pakistan. And Ron Hutchcraft of Ron Hutchcraft Ministry says today's global chaos serves as a wake-up call to the body of Christ. Get your house in order. If your focus today won't matter in heaven, it doesn't actually matter today. Every soul on this planet matters, though, and every believer has a job to do as an ambassador for Christ. RHM Resources can help you take the next step. Connect with us online to learn more and take some time to pray over Ephesians 2.10. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the Shepherd's Field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And we do this every week on our program, Rick. We examine going to articles, go to the news sites, um, really reading, uh, you and I, I mean, I don't know about you, Rick. Let me just ask you this question. When you uh, are scouring the, uh, the news sites from around the world, everything that's coming into us, we're reading those things. We're not really listening to other commentators, are we? 
We aren't, Jimmy. We know what the Bible says is going to take place in the end times. And as we look at stories, and of course, we are just looking at these stories as setting the stage. We are not saying that this is specifics that are taking place, but we just look at the generality of the way things are going in the world. Uh, For example, Jimmy, we talk about much of the battle in the end times is going to be between the Islamic world, specifically the Palestinian people and the Jewish state of Israel. And as we look at that, we know what the Bible says is going to happen in Ezekiel 38. And if if you remember, when we talked Ken today, we talked essentially about the coalition that the Ezekiel 38 talks about. We talked about Russia. We talked about Syria. We talked about Turkey. We talked about Iran, which would have been Persia mentioned there in Ezekiel 38. And we even talked about Sudan, which would have been Ethiopia there in Ezekiel 38. So we are looking at these stories and saying, hey, the Bible says this is what's going to happen in the end times. And these nations are coming to the forefront right now. You know, and I think that's so important. I mean, every week, We do seem to focus on these same nations, and that is the great thing about God's Word. I mean, God pinpoints it for us in His Word, His inspired Word that was given to us so that we might know, um, according to how the world is acting, these nations of Bible prophecy, what they're doing and how they're moving, the decisions they're making. And you're right, the common denominator in these nations— that under Ezekiel 38, Daniel 11, Psalm 83, is that it's the Islamic world that will be coming against Israel. We do talk about the Palestinians a lot on this program and the conflict between the Jews and the Palestinian in Israel today and what's taking place. And that's really when you look at everything that's happening with the rockets, these are Islamic Palestinians. Now, again, Palestinians is a misnomer because this is a term that really came about after Yasser Arafat brought back this term or brought about the term, the Palestinians again. But we could trace those people today that are have a conflict with the Jewish people in the state of Israel. We can trace those people all the way back to a conflict that started between two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And we go all the way back in the book of Genesis. I like how when we are studying God's word, we go and we use everything from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, We look at all of God's word, and that's how we're able to keep an idea of what's taking place, uh, follow news items, um, understand what's taking place in Israel, Rick. And that really does help us to pinpoint, as opposed to (laughs) trying to watch everything in the world, We can watch the nations that God has given to us, and we do that because that's helping us to understand the times in which we're living. It certainly is. And, Jimmy, it's confirming what the Scripture says is going to happen. It only makes these things more possible as time goes by. And I do like what you said, Jimmy. Some people talk about a program called Prophecy Today, and you might look at it and say, well, I bet you they talk a lot about the book of Revelation. And we do talk about the book of Revelation, but you know what? It's from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we look back at what took place in Genesis and the fall of man and the whole story of Scripture is God's redemptive process. And from the very beginning, God had a plan. God had a plan for us. And it's just really unique and neat to me that God told us what he was going to do. And he had continues to tell us what to do. He told us what he was going to do when he was going to send his son. And if you look at scriptures, especially in the Old Testament there, and we see all the prophecies pointing toward the coming of Jesus 
Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection, but now we still have about half of the prophecies in Scripture have not been fulfilled, but we have assurances that they will be because of what has already been fulfilled. You know, and that's what helps you. And again, I started out this section saying, I don't really listen to a lot of commentators. I like a few guys uh, uh, that I listen to, but I read, and you and I both read uh, and scour the news, but it's from our understanding of God's Word, how we're able to pick out the stories. And when we ask Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Israel Madad, even our other broadcast partners, Lieutenant Colonel Bob McGinnis, R.C. Merle, Mike Gendron, Rob Congdon, all these gentlemen, they have the same understanding of Scripture. They're able to pinpoint certain items as far as we're looking into the future. That way we cut out all the noise, everything else that's around us so that we can focus. Now we do and we focus because, as you said, Rick, time is short. God has a plan. He started that plan throughout his word from Genesis to Revelation, a program. Uh, God's plan for all of mankind is to establish a restored relationship with man, and that was through his son, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So everything from the past helps us to look as it's going to be fulfilled in the future. And I like what you said, 500 of those prophecies have been fulfilled. The confidence that you and I have and all of our teachers, all of our broadcast partners to do and to talk about this with, um, I would say, with certainty is because the confidence that we have is that those first 500 prophecies were fulfilled exactly as they were given every I was dotted, every T was crossed. That's what took place. If any of those, the birth of Christ or anything along the way, any one of those first 500 didn't come true as they were prophesied in Scripture, we could throw it all away. We could throw Scripture away. You and I wouldn't be here right now. But the certainty that we have that the remaining 500 are going to take place is the certainty because of those first 500 being fulfilled. I just like the way that we're able to present in a uh, an understanding way for people. We're not chasing rabbits. We're not chasing uh, ideas that are way out there, far-fetched. We are just looking at what Scripture says. Rick, thanks so much for doing the work today, for interviewing, for and as we are watching what's taking place in Israel, I know that you will be back in Israel in June. Uh, we have several more trips this year. Uh, we're very concerned, but... It's an exciting time to be alive because I think we're getting closer and closer. <laughs> In fact, I know it. Every single second, we're getting closer to the rapture of the church. Don't you agree? I certainly do, Jimmy, and it is my privilege to be involved with this program and to be sharing this with the uh, listeners as well. Folks, everything that we've covered today, everything that we've looked at, only indicates that we are getting closer and closer to the rapture of the church. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. 